Hey, um, we're in our uh, series that we've been doing, and today is going to be the last one in the series of Practicing with Purpose. And it um, essentially is about practices that we as disciples of Jesus can do. So some ancient, older church language, they were called disciplines, they were called church disciplines, um, and they're things that we can do that will put us into the presence of God that will allow God to transform us. These aren't the things that transform us, these aren't the, the main things, these aren't the things that need to be the focus, but there are things that we can do that are helpful for us to be transformed and to be shaped into the likeness of Jesus. We've said over and over um, that the, an apprentice or a disciple of Jesus, a Christian, someone who follows Christ, is someone who is with Jesus and becomes like Jesus and then does what Jesus did. Um, it's not a, a three-step program. They can happen kind of all the time, and they should be happening all the time, all through your life. Otherwise, we're just going to be like, oh, well, I'm not like Jesus. I don't need to do what He did. That's, that's not the truth. You need to do what He did even though you are still becoming like Him. And so today, we've, we've been through six others. Today is number seven, and it's the final one we're going to do. It's on fasting, and I've saved the best for last. We all love fasting, don't we? If you don't know what it is, you're going to love it, and uh, just stick with us through that. But, you know, we can, if you've, you know, if you've been around and you, you, you get busy working, and maybe you've got kids or kids on the way, um, but we can very easily get into patterns and ruts and kind of just ways of, be, habits of behavior. And we're pretty good at that as humans, and we like it. We like patterns, and we like habits. I mean, it might not be, might not be, you know, you might not be aware of it, but there are patterns and habits in your life. And we can very easily get stuck in those in our spiritual life as well. And we can lose years of our lives to the, just the mundane, boring day after day, get up, get dressed, get the kids off to school, go to work, work, come home, pretend to be so tired so that no one talks to you, and then, so you've got some time alone, and then shower, you know, eat supper, go to bed, and wake up tomorrow and do it again, and again, and again, and again. And we just, before you wipe the, the wipe your eyes, you are 10 years down the line, and you don't know where it's gone. And our relationship to God can be the same. We can go through the same habits and rhythms and with God. And sometimes we just need to break out of those habits a little bit and do something a little bit different, because it can easily become stagnant and boring. And if we, if we don't do what it takes to stay sharp and sensitive to the Holy Spirit, our worship, our prayers, our praise, our offerings, our sharing of the gospel, our preaching, it becomes just a heartless routine to God. It just becomes a, a thing that we do because it's how we've always done it, and people expect it of me because I've told them I'm a Christian, and I probably should have kept quiet about that because then I could live how I want. But you're just in this rut and this repetition of, of being a Christian. And that, you know, that really comes as no surprise because you know, we, we live in a culture that is aimed at bringing us comfort. If you're hot, put the air cons on or the fan. If you're hungry, eat something. In fact, don't even go anywhere. We'll bring the food to you. You don't even have to make a phone call. You can just click on a screen and it arrives. You, you don't even have to go and fetch your groceries. Anymore. You don't even have to brave Matuba. You can just get your groceries not in Monzi, but you can get your groceries delivered in the city. It's just aimed at comfort. Everything around us is just, and it has become the highest goal in life. He who is most comfortable is king, right? You've got the most comfortable holiday house. You've got the most comfortable car. You've got the most comfortable, you got the, everything becomes around comfort. And really, we, we, we try and fit our spiritual walk with Jesus into that. And if you've really walked with Jesus, you'll know it's not a comfortable thing. Amen? 
Yeah, he pushes us out of our, our boxes, does she? Hey? Too afraid to pray publicly, and now she's sharing prophetic words and pictures she gets. It's a beautiful picture. But we live in a culture where food has become a major thing for us. It's become a, a thing that we overindulge on. In South Africa, we have the extremes, where food is a thing that is seen as a, as a way of showing off, and we have millions of people who are struggling to get food every day. Millions and millions of people who have serious food insecurity. Not they're insecure about their food, but they don't know where their next meal is coming from. But we in, a, in the more affluent, modern, kind of Western part of society, food has become such a, such a major part of everything that we do. And it is, it's not a, food's not the bad thing. But it's become this thing where we, we almost hide from things with the foods that we eat. We don't deal with emotional issues because we're scared to face them, so we just rather eat something that makes us feel good in the moment. We live in a culture not only of food, but of excess and luxury and a, an addiction to what psychologists have called the pleasure principle. And that comes back to that thing of, of comfort. But, you know, for many of us, those things that are that can be good, have become addictions almost. They've become like the desires of our body have come to hold power over us. You know, it's not a bad thing to eat food, right? Jesus gathered around the table with his disciples often. He's resurrected. He goes, he meets with them. He, they see him. They come back. They've been fishing. They come back. He's got fish on a bra for them. He loved to share a meal with his disciples. Food is not the bad thing. But the problem is those things have come to hold power over us. If you've ever tried to fast and you've gone without food, you'll know very quickly the pain of a missed appetite. And I say that carefully because most of us don't know what real hunger is. We know when our stomach is shouts at us and it goes, hey, it's time for the next meal. Because our stomach, and we confuse appetite with hunger. But we've got to find a way to break the power of those things over our bodies. We've got to find a way to break the power of our, what Paul writes so much in the New Testament, he calls our flesh. The Greek word is socks. And sometimes he uses it to mean our, our physical bodies, but much of the time he uses it to mean our sinful nature or our fleshly nature. And so it becomes this thing, it's, don't fall into, side note, don't fall into the trap of the, the, the Greek kind of dualistic thinking that the body, the physical body is bad and my spirit is good and then that's going to be okay. That's, gonna, that's the part that I must focus on. We've got to focus on our bodies as well. You, you are not different parts. You are the whole thing. And we're gonna, I'll get more into that now now. But when Paul talks about this fleshly nature, he means this part of us that is, that is unrighteous, that is ungodly, that is the rebellious, sinful nature that we have that fights against what God has for us. Richard Foster says this, he says, in many ways, the stomach is like a spoiled child, and a spoiled child does not need indulgence. Amen. All the parents said amen. Spiritual, the spoiled child does not need indulgence, but needs discipline. Your stomach needs discipline. How many of you have ever tried to discipline your stomach? Stop laughing at me, really. Rini's laughing at me because she put me on a stomach discipline for the last three weeks. And it's been a spiritual journey, <laughs> I must just say. 
Yeah, seriously. Like I thought, like I thought, you know, I, I thought, like I got control. Like I'm pretty fit. I'm pretty healthy. But about day two, I was just like going, I wonder if, I wonder if Kirsten and Irina are going to know. Like those are the two that I was. She's my doctor and she's my wife. But like, I wonder if those two are going to know if I just have a chocolate. Like, do you think she'll tell? Day two, that's all I lasted. Like day one, I was strong. Day two, I had headaches. I was, I was unhappy. I was miserable. We had leaders meeting. I'm just like, I'm going to just quit and have a glass of Coke and a chocolate so I'm nice and I feel better. And it just was, it was a discipline to go, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, and it was hard. And this is like three weeks ago, friends. This isn't 10 years ago that I got this thing right. I'm still working on it. It's, it's, but we've got it. We can't let our stomach rule our lives. Now, fasting as a spiritual discipline is a, is a Christian discipline that has been, has been done for, for since, I mean, it was, a, it was a Jewish discipline before it became a Christian discipline. So since the start of the church, it's been there. But it really is aimed at breaking the powers and, and of, of the flesh. And the way it does that is it, is it exposes them when you are fasting. You start to learn some things about yourself and about your desires when you fast. Not a, it doesn't make you more holy. Doesn't make, it just reveals the flesh that pops up when you fast. Christians for two millennia have been fasting regularly. And it's only recently that it's, it's kind of fallen out of practice with the modern church in the last kind of century, 150 years, that it's really stopped being a, a regular practice in the church. It was something that was done. Um, the didache, which is a, literally means teaching in Greek, ancient Greek, but... Um, it was, it's the oldest kind of um, extra-biblical writing we have. So it was written around the same time as some of the New Testament letters that are written, or the books of the New Testament, but it wasn't, it's not part of the New Testament. And it was the teachings around how to live our daily lives. So it had around how to practice baptism, how to handle when teachers and prophets came into a church community, how do you treat them. And one of the things it handles in there is fasting. And in there, it says that Christians should fast on Mondays, uh, sorry, on Wednesdays and Fridays, twice a week. So a 24-hour fast twice a week, Wednesdays and Fridays, not like the hypocrites do on Mondays and Thursdays. <laughs> Apparently grumpy Christians were a thing back then even. We're not going to be like them. They, they do it wrong. And Jesus actually spoke a lot about, we'll get to that as well, about how the hypocrites fasted. And when they fasted, they put like, would disfigure themselves so everybody knew they were fasting and be like, you're, you're super spiritual. But that's why the Didache says, listen, we're not going to do that. But, but for most of church history, um, fasting one day a week is a normal routine in the week. Uh, the days that you weren't allowed to fast were the Sabbath and the, the Lord's Day, so Saturday and Sunday, because those were days of celebration and worship and praise. There was one Sabbath you were allowed to fast, which was the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I think it's called Holy Saturday in the church calendar. That was the one where you were allowed to fast on a Saturday. But any other day, they did it. One day a week is a regular um, practice. But the, the danger, um, like with all spiritual disciplines, is losing the why behind the fast. So losing the why behind the practice. So um, really, Jensen Franklin summed it up very well, and he said, the discipline of fasting breaks you out of the world's routine. I don't know if you've realized how much time you spend on food. You probably think, because it's so much of your daily routine, you probably just think, like, it's not that much, maybe five, ten minutes, until you stop eating for a day or three. And you're like, Yo, what am I going to do at lunchtime? Like, everybody's taking a lunch break. Like, what am I going to do? 
And it just, you realize, like to go, like maybe you don't prepare lunch or whatever, you go to the shop and go buy, it's like the driving there, it's the buying, it's the coming out, it's the eating. Or if you do prepare meals, it's, it's like almost 45 minutes a, a meal that you have extra per day. It's incredible. And it breaks you out of the world's routine when you fast. Let's just build quickly a, a, a short biblical theology. So let's just, we're just going to look quickly through the Bible and see where fasting comes from. So we're going to start in, in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis is always a good place to start. This is a, it's the beginning of the book. But Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. And there's a little play on words in there that we can often miss in the English. Um, and it says, the Lord God formed Adam. I think I put it in there. Yeah, I did. The Hebrew is Adam, from the dust of the ground, Adama. So it's a little play on words there. So sometimes that word Adam is translated as the, the proper name Adam. That's where the name Adam comes from, Adam and Eve. But most of the time, and, and sometimes it refers to just a man. So sometimes in Genesis, it's the man and his wife, Adam and his wife. But for this purposes, and, and most of its usage, it means humankind or mankind. And so God formed humanity from the dust of the ground, the Adama. So we are made from something physical. We are tangible. God, God literally took something of creation and formed us with that thing. So we are made by God, but, also, but made physical. And that's the first important point. And then he does this. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And God breathed his spirit. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of God giving us the first mouth-to-mouth it wouldn't be resuscitation. It would just be suscitation. I don't know if that's a word, because we weren't alive. But God breathed into humanity, and they became a living being. And so it's this beautiful picture that we are, we are tangible, and we are material, and we are made up of our bodies, but we're also spirit. We're, we're more than just the flesh. We are spirit as well. We are both combined. It's what Scott McKnight calls embodied spirituality. We're created uniquely like that. It speaks of nothing else of creation that God blows and breathes His Spirit into and becomes living. The trees do not contain God. The animals do not contain God. That is a heresy called pantheism, where God is in everything. And it's not the biblical way that we see of God. We see God through those things. We can see His, his wonder and His beauty in creation. We can see His brilliance and His love and it's just absolute majesty in creation, but we don't, God is not physically in those things like He is with us. Does that make sense? Stick with me on that one. And then we see the story, but right after that, so Adam and Eve, if you know the story, God puts them there, and He puts, this, these, he puts them in a garden. It's the first job man ever had was a gardener. He puts them in there before the fall, says, take care of this, rule over creation, rule over everything, and God gives them essentially the two spheres of creation to rule over, the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. And then we see the enemy comes in and he brings in the temptation in Genesis 3, and we have what we know as the fall or the, the, um, the, the entrance of original sin. And it's, a, it's such a picture where the enemy comes in the snake and the snake deceives the woman and they eat the fruit. And they, they essentially give up their rulership over those two kingdoms because of their desires. And we know it's the enemy that comes and tempts them, and the ultimate sin is against God. It's an act of rebellion against God. It's a, it's a thing of saying, I don't trust you, God. Because God said to them, listen, live here, 
eat from everything, do whatever you want. It's nice, it's protected, it's beautiful, but don't eat that tree. Don't eat from that tree. It's not for you. And they just say, God, I just don't trust you enough to not do that thing. How often do we do that? I like, Lord, I'm just going to make my own plan here. And they give up their authority and their rulership over the, ki the kingdom of this world to the enemy because they choose to obey him, the lies that he brings. When he says, you, you're not going to die, what happens? They end up dying. They were doing fine beforehand when they were trusting God. Adam and Eve literally ate themselves out of God's plan. It was a physical act that they did that ate themselves out of God's plan for them. The temptation was to rebellion and equal, equality with God, but the vehicle for that temptation was food. The lie that God doesn't want, the lie was that God doesn't want the best for us and that we know better. Let's move on. Genesis 25, we see another thing of food where Esau gives up his right, his birthright for a meal. Comes in, he's hungry, his brother's there, his brother says, all right, you want some food? He can't even wait to prepare food. He says, oh, you can have my birthright. It's fine. Give me a meal. Crazy. You look at it and you go, man, that's ridiculous. Just wait for supper, bro. You don't know. You can miss lunch. But it's the deception of food. It's King's stomach was shouting louder than his inheritance that he, that he couldn't hold sight of. Numbers 11, 4 to 7, the Israelites in the desert, God is providing for them miraculously. How many of you want God to provide for you miraculously in your life? Yeah? And when he does, how many of you is God providing miraculously in your life? Yeah, yeah. And yet we still go, I'm so tired of the provision of God in this one way. This manna, this thing that was so amazing. Manna literally means like, what's this? It's incredible. They've never seen it before. It's like angel flakes from heaven that God made for them. On the ground, just there. You don't even have to work for it. Just pick it up and eat. And they're like, oh, this is so boring. We need some meat. And they go, literally they go, it was better when we were in slavery. Remember the fish that we had and the spices and all of that stuff. King's stomach shouting at them over and above the miraculous provision of God, hankering for slavery because they can't control their stomachs. On and on and on it goes. I'm going to cut it short. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there, but it's going to be up on the screen. But Matthew chapter 4 really is the first story of the, the kind of the adult part of Jesus' life. We've got a little bit about his thing, and he goes, he gets baptized, and then we go straight into this, these verses in Matthew chapter 4, 1 to 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness or the desert or the barren place to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Thank you, Captain Obvious. 40 days and 40 nights without food. Incredible. Do you know that there's two other occasions where there's 40 days and 40 nights that someone fasted in the Bible? And so we can also miss that if we don't pay attention. Elijah fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain. So immediately the Jewish brain would go, oh, look at that, he's the same. There was no one else that did 40 days and 40 nights. Are we not advocating for 40 days? We're not going to do that this, starting this week. Just so you, some of you are like, I can't handle it, it's too much. You're right, none of us can. That's supernatural. That's supernatural. Don't do it unless God definitely tells you that, and you've got to be real sure about that. 
He was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, do you see the attack? Do you see the temptation again? He comes at his identity. He doesn't say, if you want to do, like, if you think you've done great things. If he comes and he attacks the identity of Jesus. And he says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's another temptation where food is used as the vehicle for temptation. Friends, we look at it and we think, man, we just eat. This is just like what we do. We've got to eat. And it's right, we do. But that thing rules our lives very carefully. You know, I used to struggle with alcohol uh, and alcohol addiction. And I think it's easier to struggle with an alcohol addiction than it is to struggle with a food addiction. Because I can go without alcohol for the rest of my life. You can't go without food for the rest of your life. We have to take it at some point. But we've got to be so careful not to let that thing rule our lives and be the thing that we get tempted into missing out on God's plan. Jesus here in, the, in these four verses is essentially replaying the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 all over again. But the beauty is, unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus succeeded in not giving in to temptation. Unlike us who give in, Jesus didn't. Unlike the billions who failed through church history, Jesus was victorious. Jesus starts off his ministry with fasting. Matthew chapter 6, a few pages over, verses 16 to 18. Early on, we're in the Sermon of the Mount, this great body of teaching that Jesus gave, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus here talks about three things in Matthew 6. In 16 to 18, he talks about fasting, and this is what I alluded to earlier. He says, when you fast, do not look somber, that's sad or unhappy or miffed, as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. You know why he says that? Not because there's anything wrong with fasting as a practice. It's because he's saying you're looking for the approval of people's, uh, you're looking for people's approval. You're doing this thing to receive people's approval. And by doing it publicly and displaying it and being like, oh, look at me. People are going, wow, that's amazing. You've received your reward. There's nothing more that God can give you. That's what you were doing it for. But when you fast, when you fast, there's a subtle word in there. There's a difference between if and when. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting. Just as a caveat... I've never put oil on my head while I fasted. It was a, that's a cultural practice that they did to make themselves look fresh. He's essentially saying, wash and brush your hair. Look neat and tidy. Brush your teeth. Eat some chewing gum. Look good. He's saying, don't, don't try and look all super spiritual and hard done by. So it won't be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's not go too far in that. It's not that we need to hide our fasting from people. We can have a corporate fast where everybody knows we are fasting. That's okay. But our heart attitude is not to be seen by everybody else. Does that make sense? I don't need to harp on that too much. I think we all get that. But in this, in this little body of teaching, Jesus assumes a couple of things. He assumes that his disciples will fast. He's saying, when you fast. So he's assuming that they're going to do this practice. And he also assumes that they're going to mess up. And that's okay. He's saying, hey, when you do it, just do it right. Like, don't, don't, don't do it wrong. 
And there's three things that Jesus talks about in Matthew 6. He talks about giving to the poor, praying, and fasting. He said, and all three of those, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, they are things that Jesus assumes he's going to do. Now, if we're honest, we're all good with praying. Yeah, we all love that one, eh? Especially when things are going bad. We're like, God, help me. You need to come now. We're real good at praying. We love, and everybody gets it. Like praying part of life, part of, it's just, you know, that's how we commune with God. It's how we, we get that. Even if you don't know how, you can pray the Lord's Prayer and you're praying and it's amazing. You can pray silently in your heart. It doesn't have to be public and out there. We're also, most of us, we're okay with giving to the poor. Yeah, if we really had to, we said like that person's just poor. They need help. They're deserving. Like we know them. We're going to help them. We give some. Yes, we can give. We love. Okay. Might be hard. Might be, oh, like a little bit painful. But we're okay with that one. Many of you give regularly every month. But fasting, when did you last fast? When was the last time you fasted? And there's a difference between fasting and abstaining. Putting your phone away for a day, that's abstaining. That's not fasting from your phone. I'm talking about going without food. When last did you fast? It's a long time ago. Some studies show 98% of Christians do not fast regularly. Welcome. It's lovely to have you here. But it is a practice that we need to do, friends. And I want to challenge you. And we're going to put it out. I'll talk more about that just now. But we're going to put it out in the week um, on how to fast and, and um, a bit more about this. So, so what fasting isn't? Let's just touch on that quickly. Fasting isn't simply going without food. That's called a diet. And it's kind of become a, a bit of a, um, like a health thing recently in some of the gym, um, like fitness fanatics and people that are like, what's it called? Intermittent fasting. That's the word I was looking for. Intermittent fasting. So where you go long period, longer periods than you normally would. So you, but it's meant like, it's just meant for, for your body. It's also not going hungry and punishing yourself in order to coerce someone else to acquiesce to your desires, to give in to your desires. You're not trying to twist God's rubber arm by fasting. That's called a hunger strike. That's not what fasting is. You're not like, God, I'm not going to eat until you do this thing. Let's hope God does it. Otherwise, 40 days and 40 nights, here you go. But there were some guys in the Bible who said that, eh? They were, tracing, they were trying to kill Paul. And they said, yo, we're going to go without food. We're not going to eat until we kill Paul. Paul lasted a few years after that. I wonder if those oaks kept their promise. But it's, it's not a hunger strike. You're not trying to force God to do something in your life. And many of us treat it like that. We treat the fast as something that we've got to do because then God will pay attention to my suffering. It's just not how it works, guys. It's also not making yourself more holy through improved health. It is good to be healthy and it's good to be holy. It's also not just a simple cleansing of your gut. Now, all of those, or some of those, maybe it kind of ancillary benefits to fasting. They add on benefits. They're things that we get. It is good for you. Studies have shown that fasting and going without food for a period of time is good for you. Lent was a long fast in the church, in church history. Originally, 40 days leading up to Lent, I mean, leading up to Easter was called Lent. That was when the traditional Christian fast was you didn't eat um, during daylight. 
So you would go without food and then eat supper. Have you heard about that kind of fast? Most of you would go, that sounds like Ramadan. Yes, where do you think they got it? It was the churches first. That's how we used to fast up until then. Now we've come to giving up a chocolate or we've come to give up Facebook or something for Lent and it's different. It's ju- that's abstaining, it's good, we need, but it's not fasting. You with me? So, without the word and without prayer, fasting is simply a physical act which remains largely unbeneficial beyond the immediate present. It doesn't bring lasting change in us. It might bring a short change, but it doesn't bring that lasting change. So, Biblically, we see three reasons for fasting. So why do we fast? The first one is in response. Response to a tragedy. It's in a, a time of mourning. We do, it, we do it the other way around. We kind of have like funerals or memorials and then we go and eat. And it's always been a little bit like a thing for me where it's like a little bit weird. Like a, a meal is such a celebratory time. But it's, and biblically we see the, the immediate response. And uh, there's many, many examples. Uh, Saul and Jonathan's death. The people of Jabesh, they fasted. David fasted in the process of mourning for their deaths. Uh, 1 Samuel 31, 2 Samuel 1. Psalm 69, 10, David puts weeping and fasting together. Nehemiah 1, he fasts at the fall of Jerusalem. Ezra 10, fasts at the unfaithfulness of the exile. So often we see fasting, going without food, as a response to a tragedy, as a response to the mourning that people are in. The second reason, the second kind of, Example we see as to why fast is repentance in the Bible, is ours and others. When people come to the place of repentance, and we see this even uh, with people who weren't very good always. So King Ahab comes to the point of repenting in 1 Kings 21, and he fasts before the Lord, and the Lord relents. Leviticus 16 and 23, we see corporate fasting instilled as a, as a lasting ordinance for the Day of Atonement, the, the that is the Jewish holiday now called Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement. And they're going, on that day, it is a fast because it is repenting. It is the Day of Repentance for the nation of Israel, Day of Atonement for the nation of Israel. Um, So fasting in response to repentance really seeks to um, restore our intimacy with God. That's what it is. So repenting is a turning away from worldly things. It's a mind shift change where we turn away from worldly things. We turn back to God. That's what it means to repent. And fasting is, is essentially a picture of that where we're going, I'm going to go without worldly things and focus on you, God. It's not just going without. There's a turning and a focusing on God that happens. David Kakesh says this. He says that acknowledges fasting, acknowledges our weakness and reliance on God's strength as we wait for him to intervene. And it's a great picture of repenting because it's not our, it's not, none of our acts that cause our forgiveness. It's God's greatness and His mercy and His justice that bring that. As we repent, He forgives because He is gracious and kind. And so when we fast and we go without, we are going, God, it is nothing in this world that can sustain me. It is only you. Isaiah 58, verses 3 and 4, God says He doesn't want fasting simply as a ritual. There must be a change that comes about. Fasting must lead to repentance, which is a change in direction. To be clear just on repentance. Fasting is not a requirement for our repentance. That would immediately make it a works gospel where we can earn it. Repentance comes purely because of the grace of God that comes and, and deposits faith in our heart that we get to turn away from our sinful nature and turn to Jesus. 
your salvation is, is holy and completely accomplished by the blood of Jesus. Dallas Willard says this of fasting. He says, fasting teaches us a lot about ourselves very quickly, usually by lunchtime. That's my own insert. That's not his. It reveals to us how much our peace depends upon the pleasures of eating. Do you, have you ever heard the term hangry? It's when you're hungry, you're angry because you're hungry. Hangry. It's a thing. It may also bring to mind how we are using food, food pleasure, to assuage the discomforts caused in our bodies by faithless and unwise living and attitudes, a lack of self-worth, self-worth meaningless work, purposeless existence, or a lack of rest or exercise. If nothing else, though, it will certainly demonstrate how powerful and clever our body is in getting its own ways against our strongest resolves. The third thing we see as a biblical reason for fasting is readiness. So preparing for something, preparing prophetically usually for something that people see is coming their way as they go into a time of fasting. And obviously, um, we've spoken already about Jesus doing it as he went out, and that was Moses and Elijah as well. Um, But we see it in Esther, where Esther asked Mordecai to get the Israelites to fast with her before a pivotal moment of going into the king. Two Chronicles, Jehoshaphat calls for a corporate fast to inquire of the Lord before they go into battle. Uh, It carries on. Acts 13, um, while while the church is fasting, they hear the Spirit, and the Spirit says, um, send out... um, and after more fasting and prayer, they lay hands on Paul and Barnabas and send them out. Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas appoint elders after a time of fasting. So we see this fasting over and over again um, as a preparation for something that's coming. But fasting is a means to an end. There is a purpose to our fasting. It's not just super spiritual. The aim and substance, Dallas Willard goes on from that previous quote, the aim and substance of spiritual life is not fasting, prayer, hymn singing, frugal living, and so forth. Rather, it's the effective and full enjoyment of an active love of God and of humankind in all the daily rounds of normal existence where we are placed. You see, Jesus demonstrates that he is literally sustained by what God has for him to do. Those things are good, and we need to do those things, fasting, prayer, and reading the Word. and That's not the point of it. The point is that we commune with God and we love other people. John chapter 4, the woman at the, Jesus meets the woman at the well. His disciples, he sends them off into town to go and get some lunch. Literally, he says, go into town to buy some food. And while he's at the well, he meets this woman, Samaritan woman. And he has this incredible interaction with her, which breaks all sorts of cultural and social boundaries. And, and he talks to her about living water. And if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask, and I would give you living water. And, and she goes, you know, there's this Messiah that we know is coming. And he says, I am he. Then the woman goes off and goes to the town and says, man, you've got to come see this guy who tells me, he told me everything I ever did. And people get saved because of that. And then the disciples come back from town with lunch. And they're like, hey, Jesus, here you go. And Jesus says, no, thanks. I'm okay. I don't need any bread. I, my sustenance is doing the will of my Father. Incredible statement. And we tend to over-spiritualize that and think Jesus was like content that this woman got saved. And he was like filled up spiritually and it was nice. But he, what he's saying is like, I'm not going to eat because I literally feel full from the work I've done. It's an amazing thing. I probably should have read that, but anyway. My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. 
Last one from Dallas Willard. Fasting confirms our utter dependence upon God by finding in Him a source of sustenance beyond food. If you've ever been on an extended fast, you'll know that you can tough it out for a bit. But there comes a point where you're like, God, I can't anymore. And that's where it happens. That's the moment where God goes, yes, you're right, you can't. And neither can you in your everyday life. So we can find joy in this spiritual discipline because we find God within it. It's not joy in a, some sort of ascetic beating back of my body. Those, that's good. It's good to keep your body in control and in check. It's not some weird masochistic thing, but it is that we get beyond ourselves to God in this moment. And I guarantee you, your stomach is probably the hardest way to do it, even harder than your wallet, is overcoming the stomach. So we're going to do a fast this week. We have picked, th I have picked Thursday, so I hope it's a good day for you. You've all got nothing on, and you've all got lots of time, and guys, it's never a convenient time to fast. The, the, if I picked any day in the week, you're going to be like, yo, that's not a great day, Mark, hey, buddy. Tuesday works better. Tuesday rolls around, oh, sorry, I got busy, forgot. Thursday, we're going to do Thursday. Now there's some, we're going to put out the practicalities in, uh, in the practice this week of being sensible about fasting, okay? So we're going to do, if you want to join us, there's a number of different ways you can do it. Um, there's some different practices through church history. So the, the twice weekly fast, they usually fasted during the day. So they would miss, they would have like supper, let's say we were doing Thursday, we'd have supper Wednesday night. You wouldn't have breakfast or lunch Thursday and you would have supper again Thursday night. Okay, so that's, if you want to do it that way, if it's your first time, I recommend doing it that way. If you fasted before and you, you're feeling up to it and you, you're ready, go for, let's go a full 24 hours. Okay, so no, no dinner Wednesday night, no breakfast, no lunch, eat dinner Thursday night. Or you can have dinner Wednesday night and then breakfast Friday morning. That's a bit longer than 24 hours. If you're super spiritual, I'm kidding. It's, it's also fine to do it that way. You skip the whole of Thursday. Okay, so, but there are some practicalities around fasting that you need to be aware of. We do also need to be sensible with our bodies. If you have health conditions, please be careful in your fasting, all right? Don't, there's, it's going to be a full fast, so it's going to be no food, only water. Um, so just be sensible in how you go. If you are pregnant, please don't fast like that, okay? Michelle going, whew, she got she got another three and a half months before she can fast. <laughs> oh, yeah, then you, no, you, sorry, you got a bit longer. You can do different kinds of fasting. But if you, seriously, if you have any other health concerns, if you have medication you need to take that requires food, please take food with it. Don't mess up your stomach because you're taking medication. All the medication won't work properly. I'm not 100% sure which way around that works, but if you need to, please be sensible about it, okay? If you're unsure, please speak to your doctor and find out, hey, can I, while I've got this condition? Maybe you are... Um, maybe you've got low iron or whatever, I don't know, is what it is, you figure it out, please be sensible. Kids, don't let kids fast, okay? Kids are growing, they need nourishment, they can, they can abstain, they can experience it in other ways. Um, teenagers are probably fine, but little kids, don't let them take part in that, okay? If you're walking your kids through the devotions and things like that, um, teenagers, you're fine, you don't, get a, you don't get a free break from it. So you can, once they're in high school, they can, they can take part to a certain way. But prepare for the fast, so prepare for the day, prepare both spiritually and physically. So wean yourself off the things that you know are going to be a problem like sugar and caffeine, okay? 
Because if you're used to 12 cups of coffee a day and you suddenly go to none, you're going to be worse than hangry. Ask me, I know. Okay. <laughs> Ask her, she knows better. Pick, yeah, we're going we're gonna to pick a time for you, but, but prepare for the fast. Um, and, and part of that preparation is also being expectant. So that's the spiritual preparation that we need to do is not just the focus on the food. That's an important thing and we need to get there. But let's also prepare spiritually in preparing to hear God, in preparing for God to move. Some of us are terrified by that prospect. But I promise you, He's a good Father. And when He speaks, it's good for you. Know how I know? Because the Word promises it over and over again. That God does nothing that is bad for those. He works all things for the good of those who love Him. He works all things for the good of those who love Him. But let's expect God to move. And we're going to look forward to some testimonies next week Sunday, yeah? If you feel God speaks to you, feel God does something, I, want, I, I really want to encourage you. If you were like, man, this is my first time I did this, and I, I really heard God. You don't have to tell us what you heard. It's just uh, we really look forward to testimonies out of this. So please, if you want to, there's no pressure. You're not more or less spiritual if you don't have like a theophany with God where you have this incredible burning bush moment. But prepare for that possibility. There's a very, very real possibility of that happening where you encounter God in a different way because you're removing some of the distractions of your body. Is that okay? So look out for the devotions in the week. We're going to fast on Thursday. Whether you're going to do it as a, a day fast or a 24-hour fast, it's up to you. No one's going to come check on you. But I want to encourage you to take part in one way or another. Is that okay? Let's not fast now and have some coffee and cake. And <laughs> so last bit of cake before the... I'm kidding. You can go up until like Tuesday, maybe Wednesday morning, but not after that. Let's pray. There's never a convenient day to fast, guys. There's always something that comes up, I promise you. But join us. Father God, I thank you that you are overall and above all, God. I thank you that there is nothing that is beyond your control and beyond your kingship. I pray, Jesus, that you would settle in our hearts that you are our king and not our stomachs and not our bodies. I pray this week as we walk into this next discipline that you would help us to establish this as a, as a regular priority in our walk with you, that it would be a practice that we would take part in often, Lord God, and regularly. I pray, Jesus, that you would speak to us this week. Speak to us in a way and in a, in a, just in a clear way that we've never heard you before, Lord. I pray for prophetic ears to hear what you are saying to us, Lord God. I pray for the Spirit to move in a way in our lives and in our hearts that He never has before. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and presence yourself. Maybe there's people, God, who've never known you as a person. And Holy Spirit, won't you come and presence yourself with them in that day and they would experience and know you the reality of you as a person. Jesus, I thank you that we get to follow your example so that we can become more like you. And I pray, God, that you give us a heart that is for the nations, a heart that goes out, a heart that seeks beyond ourselves and that seeks to impact the world we live in and advance the kingdom of heaven wherever we're at. Give us this boldness and this courage, Jesus, every day. Amen. Amen. Beautiful. See you in the week.